Omicron is, is very virulent. It spreads rapidly, but it appears to not be deadly. So explain to me why this wouldn't be a great opportunity to kind of let it rip through the population and get herd immunity. Reason 10,832, why you shouldn't watch Fox. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE in Eureka, in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFZ, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950 KTNF and coast to coast and around the globe streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. But again, he and Desi are enjoying a year-end vacation. For one more day, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show. I'm based at NicoleSandler.com. But today, I'm filling in and guest hosting the broadcast. We've got a lot to talk about today. We have a wonderful guest coming up. Uh, We'll speak with Jeff Hauser. He's the executive director of the Revolving Door Project. And what they do is they scrutinize the executive branch's appointments, the people that the president chooses to be in his cabinet and head agencies and uh, the like. You know, like Donald Trump, who only surrounded himself with the best people. Right. So we'll talk to Jeff Hauser about, well, how Donald Trump did and how Joe Biden is faring now almost at the end of his full first year in office. But as usual, we'll start with the news. Now, being that this is the week between Christmas and New Year's, there's not a lot of news happening. But of course, a big story just broke as I'm getting ready to put this show, as they say, to bed. The jurors deliberating in the in Jelaine Maxwell's case are back. They found her guilty on five of six counts, including conspiracy to commit sex trafficking and sex trafficking of an individual under 18. She was found not guilty of enticement of one individual under 17 with the intent to engage in sexual activity, but she was found guilty of recruiting young girls to, quote, massage Jeffrey Epstein all around the world. Good riddance, Ghislaine Maxwell. May we never see you again. Now, on to the other news. Now, I know people die every day, But it seems that at the end of the year, the deaths are somehow of a greater magnitude. And in the last few days, we've lost some giants. Harry Reid, 
the former leader of the Democrats in the Senate from Nevada, who spearheaded legislative battles through three decades in Congress, died at the age of 82 after a battle with pancreatic cancer. President Joe Biden, who served with Reid in the Senate, called him one of the all-time great Senate majority leaders in our history. John Madden, legendary NFL coach, Hall of Famer, and sports broadcasting icon, died unexpectedly at the age of 85. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell said, quote, He was football. There will never be another John Madden, and we will forever be indebted to him for all he did to make football and the NFL what it is today. While many people will morbidly wonder who's the third one going to be, I'm here to tell you that it already happened with sadly little notice taken. Sarah Weddington, the woman who argued and won Roe v. Wade before the Supreme Court, died on Monday. She was only 26 when she went before the Supreme Court with almost no legal experience, having never even tried a case before she and her co-counsel in 1971 won one of the most consequential cases in American history, that a Texas state law banning abortions except to save the woman's life was unconstitutional. Sarah Weddington was 76. And in not completely unrelated news, the United States has hit a new record of average daily COVID-19 cases, with over 255,000 new cases reported in the last week, as of Tuesday. That shatters a previous record from way back in January. And on Tuesday, a new single-day record was hit, with 441,278 new cases in one day alone. Much of that increase, they say, is being fueled by the Omicron variant. And while vaccinated and boosted individuals may only experience mild symptoms from Omicron, experts are stressing that that's not the case for unvaccinated people. The surge is also affecting children, with pediatric hospitalizations up 35% in just the past week. In New York City, pediatric admissions have increased five times over the last month. But there is some conflicting information out there. The CDC on Tuesday significantly revised downward the estimate of the percentage of new COVID-19 infections in the U.S. caused by the Omicron variant. According to their data, Omicron accounted for about 59% of all U.S. infections as of December 25th. Previously, the CDC had said that Omicron comprised 73% of all cases for the week ending December 18th, but they've now revised that number to 22.5% of all cases. These estimates mean that while a majority of new infections are attributed to the Omicron variant, the Delta variant has not been sidelined and it still accounts for about 41% of infections. Right about now, we could use some good news, right? So here you go. The No Surprises Act goes into effect on January 1st. If you're wondering, what is that? Well, it bans most unexpected charges from out-of-network providers. Chances are, if you've ever visited an emergency room or had a hospital stay, you've been hit by some of these. The anesthesiologist or the respiratory specialist was not in network, and you get hit with a massive bill. The No Surprises Act will change that. Thank you. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection has stood down on request for some documents from the Trump White House after pushback from the Biden administration. 
This is the first time the administration has insisted that the committee scale back its pursuits, though such an exchange isn't unusual during a congressional inquiry into such high-profile affairs. As a result, the committee will not be getting hundreds of pages of National Security Council records. But the Biden White House said in a letter earlier this month that those materials didn't appear to have anything useful for the committee's purposes. Just in case you were wondering, The Hill, Wednesday morning, published a list of the 10 Republicans they believe are most likely to run for president in 2024. Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Ted Cruz, Mike Pompeo, Christy Nome, and Tom Cotton. Insert your own comment here. Westchester County, New York, District Attorney Mimi Roca said on Tuesday that two credible allegations of misconduct were made against the former governor, Andrew Cuomo, but she is unable to file criminal charges, quote, due to the statutory requirements of the criminal laws of New York. Huh? A little more information or context would be nice. Two women had accused Cuomo of kissing them without consent. Another investigation this year by the New York Attorney General's office found that Cuomo sexually harassed several women during his time in office. Cuomo resigned following that report and now faces a criminal misdemeanor charge for forcible touching. Or maybe not. Jury watch. The jurors in the fraud trial of former Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes completed a fifth day of deliberation on Tuesday with still no verdict. The jurors, who sat through 14 weeks of testimony, continue their deliberation Wednesday. Other high-profile white-collar cases in recent years have seen deliberations lasting two weeks or longer, so it's not that unusual. Holmes faces 11 criminal charges and could be sentenced to as much as 20 years in prison. She's accused of defrauding investors in her medical startup, as well as patients who used its blood testing services. And, as we mentioned at the top, the jury in Ghislaine Matthews' trial found her guilty on five of six counts. Bye, Ghislaine. I told you it was a slow time for news, right? We'll take a very quick time out and come back on the other side and see how Joe's doing. We'll check in with Jeff Hauser of the Revolving Door Project next. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, your guest host today on the broadcast. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, filling in one more time in 2021 for Brad and Desi. As we approach the end of the year, we're also nearing the end of the Biden administration's first year in office. How'd they do? Well, if you go by the corporate mainstream media or the latest polls, not so good. But that's far from scientific, as we've been made all too aware. Throughout the year, I've checked in periodically with Jeff Hauser. He's the director of the Revolving Door Project. They're at therevolvingdoorproject.org. It's a part of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, CEPR. That's Economist Dean Baker's organization, and it's one I have the utmost respect for. And what they do at the Revolving Door Project is scrutinize executive branch appointees to ensure that they use their office to serve the broad public interest rather than to entrench corporate power or seek personal advancement. I read that right off their website in case you were wondering. Anyway, so as we near the end of Biden's first year in office, 
I thought I'd ask Jeff Houser to grade him on the people he surrounded himself with. At the Revolving Door Project, what you do is you kind of scrutinize the appointments made by the executive branch in any administration, right? So before we get into Joe Biden, what was your overall, do you grade? What what was your overall takeaway from, say, the previous administration? How did they do with the filling the positions around the government that the, the executive branch needs to fill? I mean, I think Donald Trump underscored why progressives should always pay attention to the executive branch, because he showed what happens if you put uh, America's most corrupt, most incompetent and people who are at times both. Um, in charge of everything. And that includes a bungled coronavirus response, bungled hurricane response in Puerto Rico and elsewhere, and obviously an attack on uh, environmental workplace safety and all sorts of regulations that keep us safe and well. So Trump showed the importance of the executive branch and what not to do. Right. And on every front, his his um, appointments, the people that he nominated for for top cabinet positions were head scratchers, uh, to be polite. Rick Perry, for instance, named energy secretary when the one thing that anybody can tell you about Rick Perry and the Department of Energy is that was his oops. When he ran for president in a debate, he was asked, what three government agencies would you abolish? And he said, I don't remember what the first two were, you know, it was um, education and environment and oops, I can't remember. And then, oh, it was energy. And so so Trump names him energy secretary. That's I mean, I talk about opposite world all the time. That's a perfect example, isn't it? All right. So they trolling was a governing ideology for Donald Trump. And so you had. Ben Carson, who had no knowledge of housing policy at HUD. You had Rick Perry at Energy. You had Betsy DeVos, who has never had a member of her family go to public school of any kind in charge of the Department of Education. Um, It was all trolling all of the time. And that's beyond, you know, the nepotism twins in the White House of Jared and Ivanka. So, yeah, again, everything you should not do was done by Trump. Right. So I I asked you that to sort of put it in perspective, because that's what we dealt with for the last four years. I don't know how you did it in your office without pulling your hair out. I see you still got some some up there. Uh. (laughs) Um, So then the Biden administration comes in. The adults are back in the room. Doesn't mean they're necessarily going to do a great job, but they're not even on the same in the same universe, are they? No, no. I mean, the disappointing Biden nominees are like standard, mediocre to bad, but like competent. And they want to get many things right, even if at worst they are undercutting the public interest on some core corrupt issues. And then some of the best are amazing and some of the best uh, nominees in many decades going back to the reign of FDR. So, I mean, it's a mixed bag between disappointing and excellent. But I think overall, probably the best team we've had since the, you know, Kennedy LBJ years, which are a very different political milieu. Wow. And that's pretty high praise, Um, especially for an administration who's under such attack. So that's the other thing I wanted to ask you about. Does Joe Biden deserve the treatment he's getting by the press and and frankly, by the American people in, in terms of polling numbers? 
I mean, it's also a mixed bag. It depends in part on like what perspective and what you're looking at. I think there's much that he could be doing better. Uh, obviously, his job is incredibly difficult, both because of events that are ongoing and no one's fault, and because he also is the successor to Trump, which means uh, problems were exacerbated rather than addressed for the previous four years. Um, and Congress is complicated. Uh, 50 senator base yeah. with no Republicans showing any inklings of uh, compromise, that's, that is genuinely difficult. Um, do I think that Biden has been naive? Yes, I do. I think that he, like Obama before, wanted to have a legislative program that was one item before another. Mm-hmm. Rather than running on multiple fronts at once, Let's put everything into one big bill. Now, some of that is, again, the filibuster. And so not totally his fault. That's why all these answers have to be like a little bit in between. Like you have to recognize that having the filibuster is terrible. Mm-hmm. And man, getting Manchin in cinema to move off the filibuster is genuinely difficult. I do not think there is a particular mean thing that could be said about Joe Biden by, by Joe Biden about Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema that would be the magic word that would get them out of their dug in position. Again, not to defend them, but to just underscore the difficulty of Biden's job. Uh, but that said, should you be holding off on aggressive executive branch action out of a view that you're gonna like we well, we need to do keep controversy down, like on student debt forgiveness. We don't want to do anything there because that might undermine my negotiations on the Hill. And they'll be done by September or they'll be done by Thanksgiving or they'll be done by Christmas. These constant like pushing back deadlines and holding things in a sequence. And unless we get to part A, we're not going to get to part B, C or D. That's super frustrating. Um, And honestly, I think like, there was a bit of unreality in the entire process about what could be produced and agreed to by Joe Manchin. But to give you some small examples of things that to not like be, sound like some total Biden apologist, because I definitely am not. No. Um, the deputy secretary at the interior is this Alaskan revolving door guy who goes when he's out of power, goes into a big law firm and works for a swath of fossil fuel companies by the name of Tommy Boudreaux. And uh, Lisa Murkowski and Dan Sullivan, the senators from Alaska, Republican, wanted him at Interior. And Boudreaux has undercut Deb Holland, the Interior Secretary nominee. Deb Holland is great. She's a committed environmentalist. And it was such a win for progressives to get her as Interior Secretary. But right now, a year in, we have the Interior Department sustaining many positions in court that were initially adopted by the Trump administration. There are some definite difficulties in reversing course. We have bad judges in this country because Mitch McConnell was very focused on judges and has done a great job of capturing and uh, packing the courts of this country. So that's a challenge, but there are things that could be done and they're not being done. And the reason Tommy Boudreaux is in that office undercutting his boss, Deb Holland, is because Joe Biden had a bipartisan instinct. That's terrible. That is terrible. We're not moving fast enough on COVID stuff. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Zients is a business guy who worked under Obama, who got brought back in. We want to make sure he didn't get in charge of the National Economic Council or Office of Management Budget. We succeeded there. He was instead made COVID-19 czar. 
And having a business guy in charge of COVID-19 prep, well, what does that mean? It means the efforts to force Moderna, which designed their drug principally off of intellectual property produced and paid for by the federal government. They didn't do this on their own dime. Uh-huh. They're not some entrepreneurial success story. They are, you know, maybe they're com- competent, but they're essentially a, court, a government vendor. And by the, the virtue of the fact that we have not gotten Moderna 19 vaccine all across the globe, transferred the technology across the globe on how to build the plants and how to make the vaccine, then you're going to have mutations develop. Which is what's happening right now, which is why we're in the predicament we're in now. It's, you know, I will blame the anti-vaxxers up and down, you know, the dial. But it is the fact that there are parts of the world of the planet that just don't have access to the vaccine yet. I thought we were suspending the intellectual property patents and and allowing it to go. That didn't ever happen. So that's one of these things that's a little complicated. So the U.S. did the right thing. There was a lot of pressure, public citizen and um, a variety of ethical physicians groups that work on intellectual property issues that got our go back to the AIDS fight to Mm -hmm. expand access to anti HIV um, uh, medication across the globe. Uh, We did a little bit on it, but we were uh, the tail, not the dog uh, in this scenario. Um, Great pressure was put on Biden and they said, yep, we will support getting rid of the international trade rule that prevents the distribution of the vaccine. And that's where Angela Merkel, who became far too popular on Twitter in the United States, (laughs) uh, stepped in. Uh, You might recall Pfizer is an important uh, company in this space, and they're a German company. And there are a lot of German biomedical uh, companies. And so she opposed it. And the U.S. cannot on its own change World Trade Organization, the WTO uh, rules. Suspension actually requires unanimity, which is insane. This is why- Worse than 60 votes in the Senate, huh? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. the Senate looks reasonable by comparison to the WTO. This is why figures like Lori Wallach um, and, you know, my former boss, Rich Trump, got the FL-CIO, RIP, like, they fought hard against these sort of trade deals because they're insane. Um, and so there was that was not something that was within the power. It was a lot of pressure put on it. Gina Raimondo, one of the worst picks in the administration, she opposed it, but she got overridden. Jeffrey Zients, we put pressure and he like switched positions. He got to the right position. But that's plan A for sharing the vaccine technology. And that failed. And that's not the U.S.'s fault. Like right. maybe they could be right. fighting harder. I don't know for sure. But like plan B is to just forcibly make them do it. Use things like the Defense Production Act, use the contract with Moderna. But the contract with Moderna has not been made public. And we don't know. There are some claims that maybe they can't force them. It's pretty hard for outsiders to know if the materials are not made public, as they obviously should, because this is taxpayer money. Right. Um, but there are plans B, C, and D, and I... Like, I'm not the expert on the details of each and every plan, but not everything is being done and everything should be done because not only should anti-COVID vaccines be spread around the world, all vaccine technology. That's right. We should not be creating monopolies in the mechanism to keep people safe. And the fact that these pharmaceutical companies are getting obscenely 
wealthy off of these drugs is a, is just a travesty. I'm so a healthcare should be one of those things that is not a for-profit venture. The money made should go back. I, and I guess the, some of these companies have to earn a profit, but there's got to be a reasonable cap. And at some point, enough is enough. Give it back to the people. Don't charge so much. Uh, spread it around the world. Do something good with it. Right. My, my colleague, Revolving Door Project is housed at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And Dean, Dean Baker, Baker. Yep. at SEPR, uh, which is how you say the acronym, okay. uh, has a book called Rigged. And he practices what his pre- he preaches. The book is freely available to download on the Internet. Nice. And a lot of it is about intellectual property. And the basic uh, idea on intellectual property is that we should have licenses rather than monopolies. So if you design a drug, there should be, you can also have a prize system. There are a couple of different ways you could go about it, but we should, instead of giving people monopolies, which are designed to reduce supply to increase price, this is basic economics. We should do something that gives the purveyor the incentive to not only produce it, but to maximally distribute the end result. Um, and I think that's what we need. It's not to say if you produce it, you shouldn't be entitled to make some degree right. of profit, but your incentive to be to, should be not necessarily to maximize profit, but to maximize distribution and make a reasonable profit. Moderna and Pfizer right now are not making reasonable profits; they're making unreasonably large profits. It, right, and and, there, and that sh- it shouldn't be that way. I mean, the the goal should be to eradicate COVID and get us back to some semblance of normalcy, which I don't I don't believe we're going to see in my lifetime. I really don't. I think this is uh, unfortunately it's gotten beyond us. The fact that it's back with this Omicron varietal that it, it, it doesn't these vaccines aren't very effective against at with with the doses we've been given so far is just so disconcerting on so many levels. So Zeitz, is his name? Uh, Jeffrey Zients. Zients. It rhymes ironically with science. Oh, yeah, yeah. Zion. And I remember you warning against him, and he, he, we, you kept him from other positions, but they give him this. And what's really frustrating is when Biden came into office, they were doing everything right around COVID. And it seems that midway through, as it went, they dropped the ball. They've gotten slower. Um, The fact that at this point, I know Biden is now scrambling to get 500 million uh, home COVID tests out to the American public for free, but they weren't supposed to be kicked in until the middle of January. By then, it's too late. And other countries have it. We are lagging behind, which shouldn't be the case. Yeah, there are two principal ways that you can uh, get more testing kits everywhere. One, and this should have been done since the beginning of the administration, is the Defense Production Act. Yes. Um, I think testing kits and honestly, high quality masks for at a minimum kids in public schools, yep. potentially available to everyone, That those should have been high priorities. You know, you know I see, you know, still see people wearing cloth masks and I just read a warning somewhere today don't wear a cloth mask. You may as well not wear a mask. You need an N95 or a KN95 or a surgical mask. Yeah. And we should not be expecting people to like find them on their own. We should be, the government like exists for a reason. So the Defense Production Act is a way to compel the production of products. Again, there is a reasonable profit. This is not 
expropriation, whether whatever degree of like socialist or communist somebody might be, this is very much not that. This no. is you're guaranteed an eight percent profit on your uh, endeavors. But if this is what's necessary to defend the country, they can make you do, it. and they're finally doing that on testing. But there's no reason they couldn't have done that. 11 months ago. And then the second thing, um, uh, an allied group of ours that we work with a lot, the Economic Liberties Project, discovered that there's a guy at the Food and Drug Administration who um, is in charge of approving testing. Um, and a lot of companies couldn't get their tests approved. And he basically approved tests from two companies with whom he used to work. So he's a revolving door figure who has gone in and out of government. And at the FDA, he is ensuring that Abbott, and I forget the other uh, name of the company, the other company name, but that they have a, they are approved and the other companies are not. And in Europe, there are far more companies that are approved to produce tests. Um, and so there are many companies at the European Union, which is not weaker on corporations than in America, uh -huh. has approved a lot more companies to make Tests. And it turns out when you have more suppliers, you you have more supply and lower costs. This Go is, figure. What a concept. Yeah. Wow. It's so almost like supply how, and demand. It's hmm, interesting. That, this shows you that having a businessman in government like Jeffrey Zients, it doesn't necessarily make that the government operate more efficiently or in a better capitalist way. It just makes incumbent business people richer which is really how unfortunately American capitalism, late capitalism works in terms of the rich getting richer. It isn't about real competition because there would be a way, if we had real competition like they do in Europe, we would have a lot more access to testing. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, from the country that, you know, prides itself on being a capitalist nation. Well, except when it isn't, I guess. Um, Jeffrey Hauser is with us. He runs the Revolving Door Project at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, CEPR. There's one, maybe he's getting unfairly beaten down. It's my least favorite of Joe Biden's appointments or the person I think is not doing the job we need him to do. Can you guess who I'm leaning towards? Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland. You got it. It wasn't, it wasn't that much of a reach. What is the deal with Merrick Garland? Is he just not up to the task? Uh, he is definitely not the man for the moment or the person for the moment. Um, I think a lot of us were hoping for a Doug Jones or a Sherilyn Eiffel. Sherilyn um, Eiffel, please. Oh, my God. Yeah. And we, Merrick Garland cares very much about how the Georgetown cocktail circuit views him. I mean, I think to some extent it can be exaggerated how much everyone in Washington knows each other and parties across party lines. That can definitely be exaggerated, but it's not always exaggerated. And Merrick Garland is a person for whom that uh, stereotype fits well. And he honestly believes that to enforce the law stringently against Republicans would be a partisan act. And I think it's a partisan act to not enforce the law equally because you're worried about appearances. Yeah. Um, so that's one big thing. And then he also believes that you should um, act like the Justice Department has remained continuously committed to the rule of law, even when it was run by Jeff Sessions and Bill Barr. And I think that's an insane worldview. But uh, in case, uh, uh, case after case, 
and we have like a tracker um, on our website, the Biden administration is continuing litigation positions that the Trump administration took. So, so just so that people understand this, whenever the U.S. government is sued, the Justice Department defends the United States. Whenever the U.S. government sues in court, the DOJ is the lawyer. They are always right. the lawyers. So right. that doesn't mean they're, they're all lawyers in the government are in DOJ. But the litigation in courts is always run by the Justice Department. And so with some very minor exceptions, but essentially always. And so the housing moratorium, that's the uh, when there was when that was allowed to lapse, that is DOJ. Um, when people are suing either environmentalists or fossil fuel companies sue about the Department of Interior and leasing and can they frack on public lands, that's the DOJ. Everything is the DOJ. And they like to show that the rule of law is consistent. The DOJ has always been about the law, not political parties. And the way they show that is continuity in position that they inherited. Oh, my. Even when the position is wrong. Yes. Even when Joe Biden's campaign had said the position was wrong during the campaign. Um, It's outrageous. Um, And part of this is that there are key positions in the Justice Department where um, Garland has entrusted revolvers from big law who I just don't trust at all. DOJ civils, the civil division of the Justice Department is this catch all that like it represents the U.S. government in all sorts of constitutional challenges, very, very significant cases. And it's run by um, this guy, Brian Boynton, whose only qualification is that he went to a law firm that tends to give money to Democrats. And like he has a key deputy who is also basically just a big lawyer, this guy, Brian Boynton. So between um, Brian Boynton and sorry, and uh, uh, Brian Netter, uh, you just have big law people. And then my colleagues wrote about it. One of the key deputies to Brian Netter, one of the co-heads of the federal program of the civil division is this guy, Alex Haas, who was a political appointee of the Trump administration. And it remains a co-director of the federal programs division, which is the single most important component of the civil division. And the civil division is the most important part of the Justice Department that no one's ever heard of. So um, why so, is why is he still there? Has it, is, I mean, can't someone say to uh, uh, Merrick Garland, this is not okay? I mean, what we're trying to get um, allied groups and uh, progressives on the Hill to take these sort of issues more seriously. This is part of like what, there's no reason why you can't focus on the executive branch and also push for build back better and serious legislation. It should not be a false choice. It should not be a choice between executive action and legislative action. We we need so much and we need all cylinders of government operating fully to address really adequately all the problems that we face. But the reality is this town has for many months been focused solely on Build Back Better. And so getting people to use their shits with the Biden administration to get Senate Democrats to focus on the executive branch has been very difficult because they people think like, well, 
I, you know, if I do this, then my, my preference within Build Back Better will not be reflected. They'll say, I get one of the things I ask for. And, and I don't think that that's right. But regardless, ironically, like Build Back Better isn't happening. Right now, so lots no, it's not. Unattended to in the executive branch. And progressive allied groups who have finite capacity, like you can't have your activists work on 16 campaigns at one time. And so I understand why people have been very focused on Build Back Better. What we at Revolving Door Project are hoping to do is build out uh, a set of ideas and campaigns um, and to-do items that allied groups, if they start focusing more on the executive branch in 2022, given the situation with respect to the legislative agenda, if they turn their attention, we hope to have some ideas for them that they, you know, they, you know, groups will pick and choose from amongst them as to the issues that resonate with them selves and their membership, but we're hoping to get groups to focus on things like should Bill Barr people still be <laughs> holding big jobs in the Garland Justice Department? Yeah, we, I, so I don't hope. think that needs much time. I, I mean, I can right now. No, <laughs> done. We're done um, and move on, you know, and, and then there's this in with with, you know, 40, 50 seconds left. What about our right to vote? I mean, if if they don't pay attention to and fix what the Republicans are trying to skew so that they can throw out the results of elections that they don't like and replace it with, you know, replace election boards and election supervisors with their own partisan hacks, then all the rest of this is moot because uh, we're not going to have any say in the government going forward anyway. Yeah, I mean, there, I think the challenges are really deep and I don't have an easy solution. I mean, I think that they need to keep at it legislatively. I think the Justice Department's top people on civil rights are much better than in other aspects of the DOJ. And I think they'll they'll do their best. They need more money to hire more attorneys because the challenges facing the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department are immense. Yes, they are. Oh, my goodness. Jeff Hauser, we could keep going, but I, I so appreciate your time and expertise. It's great to talk to you, and I wish you the best, and hopefully we'll have a happy new year. <laughs> Likewise. Big Take hope. care. Stay safe. Find out more about The Revolving Door Project at therevolvingdoorproject.org, and you can follow Jeff Hauser on Twitter at Jeff Hauser, H-A-U-S-E-R. I'm Nicole Sandler, again, filling in for Brad and Desi one final time for 2021. As for 2022, bring it on, please. All right, we'll take a quick time out and come back with a few closing thoughts and maybe a word of warning or two. Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm your guest host, Nicole Sandler, filling in one last time for 2021. I'm sure I'll be back in 2022, but we're not there yet. In this last segment, I want to tell you a bit about Florida. And yes, I pronounce it that way on purpose because, well, it is. As for why I live in Florida, (laughs) my family moved here from New York in 1971, the day I graduated from elementary school. We had my sixth grade graduation at PS 169 in Bayside, Queens. And then we went to the airport and flew down to Florida. And here we were. Now, I left after college. I went away for for many years. I moved back to New York, and then I went out to California for a long time. But I did wind up back in South Florida. And that's where I am now. I'm in a suburb of Fort Lauderdale. It's Broward County. You probably remember it from the Bush v. Gore mess back in 2000. Jeb Bush was then governor. Jeb was the first Republican governor after a long line of Democrats, some really good ones. Like, Ruben Askew was governor when we moved here in 71. We had Bob Graham, who was really good, and then he went to become senator. And Lawton Childs was another one. But Jeb took office in 1999. He was followed by Charlie Crist, who was at the time a Republican. 2007 to 11 was when Crist was in office. Of course, 2010 is when things really started to turn In this country, the Tea Party wave that took control of Congress, of course, in response to Barack Obama, the first black president. So Charlie Crist, though, misread the room. And as his term as governor was winding down, he decided instead to run for the open Senate seat. Mistake. Marco Rubio had just been term limited out as Speaker of the Florida House. Well, he came in echoing the Tea Party line, and pretty much destroyed Charlie Crist, who then lost to Marco Rubio in the primary. So, Crist dropped his affiliation with the Republican Party and became an independent, and of course, lost horribly to Rubio, who unfortunately became senator. Crist later went on to register as a Democrat, and he won a congressional seat in the Tampa Bay area, where he is now. But he's not running for re-election, because He's running for governor again, this time as a Democrat. He's got two challengers also. One of them is his last running mate, the last time he ran for governor. See if you can follow me here. Her name is Annette Tadeo. They lost to Rick Scott. And Nikki Freed, who's currently Florida's agriculture commissioner. And the problem is that as bad as Ron DeSantis is, he's raised something along the lines of $3 million for his re-election campaign, where the three Democratic challengers between them, I don't think they've raised $300,000. Meanwhile, Rick Scott, a man who pled the fifth 75 times when he testified in the biggest Medicare fraud case in American history, and he was the head of Columbia HCA, Hospital Corporation of America, who was found guilty of defrauding the U.S. government, the biggest Medicare fraud case in history. And Rick Scott, who headed that company, pled the fifth 75 times, and the people of Florida still elected him governor for two terms. And bad enough, after he served two devastating terms, he went on to replace 
Bill Nelson in the Senate. You get the Florida thing yet? But wait, there's more. So after Rick Scott was term limited out, there's another election for for governor. And Ron DeSantis came in, elected solely on a Donald Trump endorsement because he was a nothing congressman from the Florida panhandle, which is more Alabama adjacent than Florida proper, if you catch my drift. Anyway, uh, DeSantis came in and he's nuts. A prime example is the big campaign ad he ran. <laughs> Nobody knew who he was. I know this is audio only, so I'll talk you through this. The, the, the ad opens with a shot of DeSantis's wife. I think her name is Casey. Everyone knows my husband, Ron DeSantis, is endorsed by President Trump, but he's also an amazing dad. Ron loves playing with the kids. Build the wall. And it shows him playing with one of his kids with those cardboard blocks. And he says, build the wall. He reads stories. Then Mr. Trump said, you're fired. Ugh. I love that part. He's teaching Madison to talk. Make America great again. Get it? People say Ron's all Trump, but he is so much more. Big league. So good. Ugh. I just thought you should know. And the Ron kid. DeSantis. Oh, shut up. And the kid is in a make America great again onesie. That's how he won. That's how he got elected. Basically sucking up to Donald Trump and using his infant children as pawns. Seriously. But it gets worse from there. And since most polls have him as basically next in line should Trump himself decide not to run in 2024, <laughs> that DeSantis would be the nominee? Uh, I thought I'd give you an insider's bird's eye view of why you need to run. Run! Run! Make sure this guy doesn't get in. So Ron DeSantis, who many of us locals have affectionately nicknamed Moron Death Sentence, is apparently waging a war on people who want to protect ourselves from COVID. This is the man who seems to be wanting his constituents to die. He's outlawed mask mandates and vaccine mandates, basically urging us all to infect one another. And should that not go far enough, DeSantis thinks that it's his responsibility to rule against everything that the federal government mandates. So, for instance, the the federal mandate for private workplaces with over 100 people to be vaccinated, you know what Ron DeSantis did in that case? You'll love this one. And so if a government agency in the state of Florida uh, forces uh, a vaccine as a condition to employment, that violates Florida law. And you will face... And that they clap for. Mm. And you will face a $5,000 fine for every single violation. Yeah. So, uh, for instance, Leon County, which is the capital of Florida, it's where Tallahassee is, um, they fired a group of, of people for not being vaccinated. And more on death sentence fined this very small Florida county, three and a half million dollars. That's $5,000 per employee who were mandated to get vaccinated, not just the people that were fired, but for every county employee. That's who this guy is. But wait, there's more. 
DeSantis appeared at an ALEC conference. You remember ALEC, don't you? Yeah, they're the public-private partnership. (laughs) Yeah, they're basically corporations who write model legislation for state legislators who then take these bills home to their assemblies and introduce it as if they wrote them. And, of course, the the laws favor the corporations. (laughs) You know, like that. That's Alec. Anyway, so Ron DeSantis goes and um, speaks at this Alec conference and says this. Great to be with Alec. Did you not get the CDC's memo? I don't see you guys complying. (laughs) And I say that jokingly, but I, I, I think that that may be a sign of potentially seeking to do more things into the future. And I think it's very important that we say unequivocally no closures, no to restrictions, and no mandates. Mm. No mandates, right. No masks allowed in schools. Floridians are free to choose, and all Americans should be free to choose how they govern their affairs, how they take care of themselves and our families, and they should not be consigned to live, regardless of which state in the union, consigned to live in a Faucian dystopia Uh in which we're governed by the whims of bureaucratic authorities who care little for our freedom, oh my God. little for our aspirations, and little for our happiness. No more. We can't let it happen going forward. Wow. Faucian dystopia, huh? Where you don't care whether your constituents live or die. This just crossed my, my uh, inbox from the South Florida Sun Sentinel. COVID-19 update. Florida reports... 46,923 cases, shattering previous record for infections in a single day. That 46,923 new daily cases on Wednesday in Florida set a one-day record, brings Florida into the top five among U.S. states for cases per capita, according to data from the CDC. The state's seven-day average for new cases rose to 29,490, well above the average at the peak of the summer Delta surge. Hospitalizations have also risen here in Florida. New cases have more than doubled in less than a week. And yet, governor death sentence is nowhere to be seen. The mayor of Orlando held a press conference on Wednesday asking, where's the governor? He's not been heard from. They set up a few testing sites around the state that have lines hours long. In fact, the South Florida Sun Sentinel uh, on Christmas Day published a scathing editorial about governor death sentence that I think I should share with you. It is, after all, a public service. Okay, so South Florida Sun Sentinel, the date, December 25th. The headline reads... Florida's new boogeyman. And the editorial goes like this. Remember the boogeyman, that specter your parents invoked to make you behave? Almost every culture has one. So do politicians when they want to create fear. Governor Ron DeSantis has a boogeyman for the people of Florida. It is a real thing known as critical race theory, a discipline taught at some colleges, but not in Florida public schools. The governor wants nonetheless to ban it from schools and for good measure from the human resource policies and sensitivity training courses of privately owned businesses. 
That's not conservative. It's reactionary and authoritarian. Like parents who think their children's feelings have been hurt, workers could sue their employers for damages and attorney's fees if they, quote, have experienced discrimination due to CRT-inspired indoctrination, end quote, as the governor's press secretary puts it. (laughs) Legislators usually describe such proposals as lawyer relief bills, which ought to be reason enough to deep-six this one, too. But the wrongness of it goes much deeper. It perpetuates two persistent great lies. That racism did not have a major influence on American history and that it is not now an issue. That is the current dogma of DeSantis's Republican Party in its determination to retain the allegiance of white voters who are terrified of losing social and political dominance to changing demographics. Demonization of critical race theory by making it into a boogeyman is one front in the Republican culture wars. DeSantis would make Floridians ignorant of the most troublesome aspects of our past, present, and future. He knows critical race theory isn't being taught in the schools, where in any case it's already banned by regulation, but he wants to convince parents that it could be, and to terrify teachers into glossing over or even completely ignoring the truths as to how racism has shaped American history and contemporary society. There's been nothing like the DeSantis bill in the 96 years since Tennessee outlawed the teaching of evolution. John Scopes, a high school teacher, volunteered to test the law in what became known to the state's everlasting mortification as the monkey trial. Tennessee failed to repeal science, of course, but it did stunt the intellectual growth of a generation of children. Fellow citizens, Abraham Lincoln told Congress in 1862, we cannot escape history. But DeSantis means to try. In the same vein, Virginia textbooks in the mid-20th century fed students a fiction of happy slaves who loved their kindly masters. One particularly deceitful illustration portrayed a well-dressed black family, father, mother, and children, being welcomed with a handshake aboard a slave ship. The truth was that blacks kidnapped from Africa were chained naked in the fetid holds of slave ships, packed together like sardines, quote, without space to sit up or move around, without ventilation or sufficient water, according to history posted by the National Park Service. An estimated 15% died on the way. On arrival, they could be worked harder and whipped worse than the white farmers' horses and cows. It was no offense to kill a slave unless he or she happened to be someone else's property, in which event the owner was entitled to compensation. Parents had no rights to their children because they were property to be sold, like calves or mules. Slave owners and their political allies rationalized their diabolical institution by propagating racist dogmas largely unheard of elsewhere. Blacks were inferior, fit only for slavery, and it was good for them. Even Thomas Jefferson and Robert E. Lee said so. That foundational excuse for slavery haunts America to this day. Although the Civil War ended slavery, it took another century to outlaw Jim Crow. But the effects persist, documented by the racial disparities in employment, income, and incarceration, in ghettos segregated by government housing policies, 
and by how Republican legislatures try to suppress black votes. These truths are evident almost everywhere that honest eyes look. State Senator Chevron Jones, Democrat of West Park, aptly denounced DeSantis's legislation as a, quote, dangerous attempt to whitewash and rewrite history for the sake of political expediency. The governor's mischaracterization of critical race theory is too hypocritical to be excused as just the way politicians talk. He said, we won't allow Florida tax dollars to be spent teaching kids to hate our country or to hate each other. Well, in truth, no one's teaching kids to hate our country or each other, but we do need to teach them not to hate each other, even unconsciously, and to recognize prejudices for what they are. That can't be done by pretending they don't exist. Britannica.com has posted an excellent detailed explanation of critical race theory. You can read it at Britannica.com slash topic slash critical dash race dash theory. In summary, it holds that the concept of racial differences isn't natural, but, quote, culturally invented. Racism in the United States, quote, is the ordinary experience of people of color. Often it takes the form of verbal or behavioral slights that may be subtle and even unconscious. White political interests often decide what reforms, such as school desegregation, will ensue. Minorities are frequently the subjects of negative stereotypes in which blacks, quote, especially black men, came to be viewed as natural-born criminals prone to violence or as lazy leeches living off social welfare programs paid for by hardworking whites, end quote. Critical race theory is complicated and subject to honest debate, but there is nothing honest about ambitious politicians like Ron DeSantis trying to suppress it or turn it into a boogeyman. That is the editorial from the South Florida Sun Sentinel editorial board that ran in the paper on Christmas Day. I hope some people stand up and take notice. I hope you will. All right, that's my little diatribe about Florida. I'm just warning you. Don't let your country become Florida. One more thing about Ron DeSantis. He actually sold merchandise on, the, on his official website that said, don't Fauci my Florida. See what I'm talking about? Why I took this whole segment to warn you about things down here. It's scary. All right. With that, we're done. That brings us to the end of the hour. So I'm going to make my way out of here. I will thank Brad and Desi for putting out great shows all year round and inviting me to fill in when they're out. And to you for listening. I really appreciate it. I do hope you'll check out my show at NicoleSandler.com. The website's open. There's no paywall. So explore. There's tons of content on the site in addition to my daily show and podcast. So have a look, have a listen, enjoy, and maybe you'll come join me over there occasionally in the new year. I guess that's it. Stay safe. Don't be like DeSantis. Protect yourself and your loved ones and the strangers around you. I'm Nicole Sandler, wishing you a very happy, healthy, and COVID-free new year. And to all of us, good luck, world.